when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the first round of voting in the Tory leadership contest, the departure of four candidates, including Matt Hancock, and who will bag that crucial second place slot alongside Boris Johnson. Plus, we'll be discussing whether Parliament can stop a no-deal Brexit, even if a new Prime Minister tried to shut it down. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Whitehall editor, James Blitz, Deputy Opinion editor, Miranda Green, plus the prominent Conservative commentator, Tim Montgomery. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And we do like a nice positive review. The first round of voting in the Tory leadership contest took place this week. It confirmed Boris Johnson's commanding position with a whopping 114 MPs backing his candidacy, securing his place already in the final two shortlist. But it was less happy news for Mark Harper, Esther McVeigh and Andrea Leadsom, who were all knocked out of the race. And then on Friday, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, became the biggest name to exit the race. His campaign concluded that it was over and he didn't have have the numbers to make it through the next round of voting. So George Parker, let's begin with that vote. So this was the first time Tory MPs have actually cast their ballots in this contest. There's been a lot of briefing about how many candidates each side had and how it was all going to pan out. And the race pretty much came as we expected in terms of who came first, second, third, fourth, etc. Pretty much. But I think there was a collective intake of breath at the sheer scale of Boris Johnson's victory. I think lots of people have expected him to be far ahead of his nearest rivals. But with 114 votes, it was a convincing victory, more votes than the next three candidates combined. So I think that was a very significant thing. And as the newspaper headlines the next day suggested, suggests he's got one foot inside number 10 already. We saw three candidates drop out, as you say, but then also quite serious loss of momentum for Sajid Javid and Matt Hancock, who subsequently pulled out and very much now a race for second place, I think, between Michael Gove, um, Jeremy Hunt, and then Rory Stewart, who only got 19 votes, but has run the most interesting campaign, an energetic campaign so far. So I wouldn't rule him out as a, a dark horse contender. Miranda Green, these contests are all about momentum. It's not necessarily about the numbers you have, because we're still quite early. We could have another four rounds of voting if we're lucky enough in this contest. But it was clear from those results that Boris Johnson, we knew he had about 74, 78 MPs publicly. When that 114 number came in, it really confirmed everybody that this is his race to lose and he's probably going to win and be the next Prime Minister. Well, he hasn't just got momentum. He's got a former chief whip in the form of Gavin Williamson organising his vote. And that seems to be quite important to the scale of his first round victory. I mean, so much so that there were sort of rumours of heavy-handed 
tactics and MPs being asked to photograph their secret ballots to prove that they had, as pledged, voted for Boris. Which brings me on to the second point, which is really the question of what promises have been made to people and what promises are breakable and what the candidates will be held to, because I wonder what the Boris camp have said to those 114 MPs, because you can't have that many people around the cabinet table. So these are secret ballots at every stage. There will be a certain amount of churn, I imagine, and there will be a lot of interest in what people are being told they will get in return for backing the person who eventually becomes PM. But Tim Montgomery, this is not the first leadership contest you have either written about or observed or even been involved in in the past here. When you saw those numbers come in, what did it tell you about the state of the race? Well, I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think perhaps the thing that surprised me most, Seb, was the underperformance of Jeremy Hunt. I thought at the start of the week when he had Amber Rudd, Work and Pension Secretary, and Penny Morden, the Defence Secretary, coming on board in the wake of Michael Gove's difficult weekend. Let's call it just that, a difficult weekend. And the fact that the gap between Hunt and Gove was only six, I think that raises doubts about how much momentum the Foreign Secretary has. And I think Michael Gove has a real opportunity of getting to the final round now if, of course, Boris Johnson doesn't lend Jeremy Hunt some votes. I know this is this practice of being so far ahead, and I'm sure Boris would rather face a Remainer in Hunt than a Brexiteer in Gove in that final round and just top up Jeremy Hunt's vote a little bit so that it's Hunt rather than Gove that gets that final stage. But am I being too Machiavellian? (laughs) Not at all. I think there's an awful lot of that in this race to come. And you're completely right, Tim, that a lot of Mr Hunt's allies were talking about we're going to get 50 or 60, which normally means they thought they were going to get about 70 MPs. And the big gap between him and Boris Johnson does just show that people aren't necessarily too enthusiastic about Jeremy Hunt's candidacy. You know, he's established himself as the choice of the Tory establishment, if we could call it that. Mm. And as you said, he's got Penny Mordaunt, who was an endorsement many candidates wanted to have. But you just don't get the sense from the parliamentary party or the wider party there's much enthusiasm for him to be prime minister. And the fact the rumour that, you know, normally if you got the backing of the prime minister and the chancellor, that would be a huge boost for your campaign to be the next Tory leader. But just before the voting took place, we heard rumours that Theresa May and Philip Hammond were backing Jeremy Hunt. This is such an unpopular regime with the average Conservative (laughs) MP. It's almost like a kiss of death. George, let's look towards Michael Gove now. As Tim said, he'd had this very difficult weekend when these revelations came out about his past use of drugs. And it wasn't just the fact he'd used drugs. It was the fact that there was seen as he'd been hypocritical. He'd written a newspaper article in The Times back when he was a journalist about middle class use of class A drugs while apparently had used them himself. And he gave a very shifty interview on the Andrew Marr show where he just didn't look as if he was being quite honest. And it got to the heart of what some Conservatives really feel about Michael Gove is that you just can't trust him. And if we go back to 2016 and all the events of when he metaphorically stabbed Boris Johnson, it simply raised those concerns that do we really trust this guy to lead the party? Well, I think that you've put your finger on it because Boris Johnson has also this week admitted to taking cocaine when he was a student, although he said it wasn't an entirely successful episode. But nevertheless, People just say, well, that's Boris Johnson. What do you expect? You know, it bounces off him. But as you say, it reinforces existing views of Michael Gove about him not being entirely trustworthy, as you say. I thought actually he put up a pretty decent fist of defending himself at his campaign launch. He was quite robust. He 
did the uh, old Linton Crosby dead cat trick of trying to turn it all around on Boris Johnson hiding in his bunker and all the rest of it. But I agree with Tim. The fact that he was so close to Jeremy Hunt in the first round, he's six votes behind, suggests he could still claw it back and he could still go into the second round. And I also totally agree with Tim. The person that Boris Johnson talks about most obsessively as his biggest threat in the second round is Michael Gove, not just because he's a Brexiteer, but also because he's a forensic, detailed debater and the sort of person who could throw Boris Johnson off balance in the second round. And of course there's that whole psychodrama from the 2016 election Mm. and replaying that over the next month is Mm. going to be quite something to watch unfold. The other person, Miranda, who really did underperform was Dominic Raab and he's had a pretty difficult campaign because when he launched he had a very high-powered leadership team behind him including the main operatives from the Vote Leave campaign in 2016 and at first he was talking about being the Brexiter on the final two and quick that fell away to talk of being the anti-establishment candidate and he's got himself into hot water about past comments about feminism but also this NDA that he has signed and he's refused to reveal the details of that NDA and the whole thing just hasn't really taken off for Mr. Rob in a way that I think some Brexiters thought he would and when he lost the ERG when Jacob Rees-Mogg, Mark Francois and Steve Baker who are the biggest Brexiter beats in the Tory party all went behind Boris Johnson, that was kind of it for Rob's candidacy. And the number of votes he got showed that it's really over for him. I don't see where his votes come from. Well, I think that's actually quite an interesting phenomenon because clearly Rob was the hardline Brexit candidate and that's what his campaign was really about, even though he sort of tried to soften his views on feminism with pledges on things like parental leave, etc. I think, in a sense, you've got to remember that even though... We're quite rightly treating this as something that's down in the first stages just to 300 or so Tory MPs and then to the 100,000 or so Conservative members. 160,000. 160,000. Thank you, Tim, for the inflationary correction. Um, It's very important. But, you know, you can't forget also that this is a political party that wants to stay in power and everybody knows that we might have another general election. So you're not just picking who's your favourite, most hardline Brexiter. And I think actually, in a sense, Rob was slightly doomed on that front because from the very off, they've been thinking about Boris Johnson as the person who can on the one hand see off Farage and on the other hand put up a really good fight against Jeremy Corbyn. So where is Rob in that conversation? Mm. He isn't really in that conversation. I would just say to go back to the whole Michael Gove issue... It would be sensational for us as observers. I don't know how it will feel for Tim, but for the rest of us, to see that fratricidal battle played out between Boris and Gove, the two men who were the figureheads of the 2016 referendum campaign, would be great theatre. But again, you know, in those members' minds will be who could actually win a general election. And then I think at that final stage, for all his forensic debating skills, as George has said, and I personally think Michael Gove is an extremely interesting Mm. politician on many levels. If you're thinking of who could see off Corbyn, is Gove the man to see off Corbyn? I'm really glad you've emphasised this, Miranda, because I think there's quite a lot of caricature, particularly of the Tory grassroots at this stage, that they're sort of ideologically right-wing and backwards-looking and Perhaps there's an element of truth to that, but actually they are very hungry for a winner as well. And the idea that the public have no say in this contest, actually through the polling of public opinion, they have a massive say. Remember 14 years ago, 
David Cameron really won the election against David Davis, who was supposedly ideologically closer to the glory grassroots because YouGov and other opinion polls were saying David Cameron would transform the Conservative Party's electoral fortunes. And the party is looking for a winner to keep Corbyn out of number 10. So that's how the public really will be influencing this contest. If they turn against any one of the final two candidates in the leadership race, or they make it like there's no great difference between the two, that will matter. It's a very interesting point. And that brings us, George, on to the other candidate who slightly underperformed, which is Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, that he had a pretty bad start to his campaign. His launch video was very dry and it was all a bit confused. His Brexit policy was a bit all over the place. And Sajid's got this amazing backstory, but he wasn't able to tell that well and didn't seem to have much of a front story to tell either. But that (laughs) actually changed this week because you had a very powerful video of a highly produced slick video about his backstory, going back to this street he grew up on, Bristol, where it's described as the roughest street in the country and told the story of his family. Then he had his leadership launch, which, although it was delayed by two hours due to um, a vote in Parliament, it was actually quite a jolly affair. You were there, Tim, and they had, the bar was open, there mm. were snacks available, and Ruth Davidson was there, mm. and she came out and you could see she felt very passionately that Sanjay Javid should have some momentum. But that sort of came to a bit of a crashing halt because he only got 23 MPs in the first round of voting. And there's been quite a lot of pressure on him, like Mr. Raab, to drop out and rally behind a moderate candidate to stop or trying to stop Boris Johnson. Yeah, I think with Sanjay Javid, it was all a little bit too little too late, really. You're right, the campaign launch was good. He had St. Ruth Davidson behind him, obviously a massive boost to anyone's campaign. But, you know, her big public endorsement came a bit late in the day. The fact that he had this great story to tell about himself, but hadn't remembered to tell it until it was too late. Another big problem for his campaign. And speaking to people around him, I get the impression that they now realise the game's up for Sajid Javid, that people have looked at him. They don't really see him as a future prime minister. And the question is, who is Sajid Javid now going to support? Um, My guess is that Sajid Javid will fairly quickly, and certainly in the next few days, I suspect he will throw his weight behind Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson will be looking for a Chancellor of the Exchequer. And I think few would doubt that Sajid Javid has the qualifications to be a very interesting Chancellor of the Exchequer. And then, Miranda, the story was less good for those candidates who dropped out. And the most obvious one was Matt Hancock. Now, he actually got enough votes to get through that first round of voting. But the pressure on him to withdraw was quite high. And I think his team came to the conclusion quite early on Friday morning they didn't have the numbers to get through the next round because the next round of voting required you to have 32 MPs on board. And that's quite a leap from where Matt Hancock was. So he decided to pull out, but he hasn't endorsed anyone yet. And we do know... There were some late night conversations with Sajid Javid on Thursday and Mr Hancock hasn't actually declared yet. And if I have a bit of a punt on it, I think there's a very good chance Mr Hancock will end up endorsing Boris Johnson eventually as well. So part of the leadership campaign, I mean, I'm not saying that Matthew Hancock's campaign was sort of insincere. I think he genuinely thought that he could offer a fresh generation and a different, more electorate friendly brand of conservatism. But at this point those who are falling back in the race are going to be thinking about, well, what's in it for me in terms of my future political career? And obviously positioning yourself for a top cabinet job with the likely winner is the thing that's going to be uppermost in their minds. So when it comes to deciding who to endorse, very difficult not to endorse the person who's going to win. 
It's quite an interesting list of backers that he had. Will they necessarily go with him over to Boris? The thing that will be interesting is whether some of those Hancock names go over to Rory Stewart, in fact, because that's the other kind of outsider candidate that we haven't talked about yet. And of course, I think to a lesser extent with Matt Hancock, but to a large extent with Rory Stewart, what's been interesting about this contest is how the rest of us have warmed to these two individuals whose appeal to the Tory membership and certainly to Tory MPs might be rather more limited (laughs) than it is to to other people in other parties. I mean, it's really hard not to be enormously entertained by Rory Stewart and also impressed by his desire to reach out across political divides, cover the whole country in his weird Rory walks. And with Matt Hancock, similarly, this is clearly somebody who wants to be as good a minister as he possibly can be and be part of a government that actually delivers for people. So I don't think it, I hope it actually won't hurt his political career in the long run because I think Hancock's been very appealing on that level. Well, this brings us on to the last candidate who's in the race, Rory Stewart. And Tim, you actually tweeted this week that you've fallen a little bit in love with (laughs) Rory Stewart through this bid. And the whole thing has sort of been a quite of a maverick, quirky approach, the way I've thought of it. I went to his campaign launch and whereas most of them have been in quite small white ward rooms in Westminster, this was on a circus tent on the south bank of the Thames and he'd got five to 600 supporters who came out to endorse Rory. I'm not sure how many of those were Conservative Party members, but he has clearly got some momentum. He's only got 19 MPs, but considering he only had eight declared before that, there's clearly something going on there. And on your old website, Conservative Home, which you founded, there was a poll that showed that he's now the second favourite of Tory party members. He's 40 points behind Boris Johnson. But there's clearly some feeling there that Rory is tapping into something. It's back to the thought from Miranda earlier that the Tory party does actually want someone who connects with the country and people are seeing that and it's partly why I'm warming to him. You, you see him on the streets, on these you know shaky video cameras that he's filming and people of all walks of life are enjoying engaging with him and he listens patiently. He generally seems to try and understand the point that they're making and respond to it and he's talking about concepts like beauty and tradition and a peculiar character in Britain. And it's not just the sort of desiccated Thatcherism that we often get at the forefront of electoral contests. I find it very attractive. I don't want him to be Prime Minister. I don't want him to be leader of the Conservative Party. But I want him at the top table saying the sort of things that he is. And I am also a little bit worried, though. I wonder sometimes if it's all going a little bit to his head. An interview he gave in Central Lobby with Beth Rigby of Sky News when he started to talk about bringing down Boris Johnson, that I thought was a bit dangerous and we can have differences of opinion about how we get out of the European Union as a party, but he mustn't be too confrontational for his own good and for the party's own good because I don't think he'll win, but I do want him in the Cabinet after this. Well, George, this is where it's going to get interesting. So on Sunday night, we have the first TV debate of this contest because all the hustings have gone on behind closed doors and journalists like you and I stand with a cup to the wall and try and hear what's going on or look at a text message instead. But we've got this first debate and we know Boris Johnson is not going to appear at that debate. And I think really Boris just wants to stand back and let all the contenders for second place argue with each other. So those people who are still left in, Rory Stewart, Dominic Raab, 
Michael Gove, Jeremy Hunt and Sanjay Javid will be on their podiums with Channel 4 and Boris Johnson will probably be empty chaired in some form or another. And that is going to be a very interesting debate because I imagine Rory Stewart is going to go all in against Boris Johnson and try and make that case and try and get a bit of that clegmania if we think back to the first ever TV debates back in 2010 when he managed to paint himself as the moderate candidate of change, someone who's a bit different because I imagine most viewers of that will have never heard or seen of Rory Stewart but as Tim kind of said even if he does well then that's probably not going to help endear him with Tory MPs which are really at this stage all who matter. Well you're right it'll be a huge temptation for the people in that debate to have a sort of shot at Boris Johnson as you say he'll be empty chair he's made it clear he won't be taking part in that debate so they've got to be a bit careful about that but nevertheless you can imagine the two people who are going to shine in this debate will be Rory Stewart because of his quirky innovative energetic style engaging style as Tim said and Michael Gove, who's a supreme debater. Those two will come out very well, I'm convinced. And then if you look at the other four, Jeremy Hunt will appear almost the sort of continuity, Theresa May, steady as she goes, candidate, which I think is his big drawback in this contest. And then you've got Sajid Javid and Dominic Raab, neither of whom are scintillating debaters. So in that format, you would have thought that Michael Gove will get a boost and most of all Rory Stewart. And of course, there's going to be one more debate next Tuesday because that's when the second round of voting takes place. So there'll be one less candidate. If they don't have 32, 33 supporters, they get knocked out. And if everyone got that, then one assumes that the person with the most number of votes gets back. Now, to finally end on this point, I know how much we all like predictions. We all know Boris Johnson is going to be in the final two. He now has enough numbers, assuming they don't flock away. Who do we all think is going to be the other person to join him in the final two? Tim. I think Hunt, but only because Team Boris will inflate his vote tally. Miranda? Possibly, but I think that'd be very disappointing because, as George has said, he's slightly low-energy Jeremy, I would say. I think I'm sadly going to agree with my two colleagues, Jeremy Hunt, but almost by default. And I think, unfortunately, I'm going to go for Jeremy Hunt as well. <laughs> so we're probably almost certainly wrong then. Well, I'm, we're gonna, four I'm going to change my order then. I'm going to order Michael Gove in the final. And I'm going to say <laughs> Rory Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, the debate about who will be the next Tory leader and Prime Minister is all about Brexit, especially whether the UK should leave without a deal on October the 31st. Some candidates, such as Dominic Raab and formerly Andrea Leadsom, have said that Parliament could not stop a new Prime Minister from leaving without a deal. But others dispute this and say that such an outcome would require a fresh mandate through a general election or a second referendum. James Bliss, let's begin on this proroguing question to a word that's been thrown around quite a lot in this contest. And essentially, the idea would be is that if Parliament tried to table legislation to revoke Article 50 or force the Prime Minister to request another extension, as happened with Theresa May, then Prime Minister could say, right, I'm going to Buckingham Palace. I'm going to ask the Queen just to shut down Parliament until we pass October the 31st and then deal with it on the other side. What do you make of this argument? Do you think it could happen? And obviously, would it be a good or a bad thing for our constitution? Well, technically, it could happen. There's no question about that. But in reality, it's the nuclear option. It is an option that is so extreme that it almost comes close to declaring a dictatorship. You're effectively closing down Parliament for a time that could be quite long. Prorogation is something that happens very regularly. It's basically a device that a prime minister and a government use to bring what's normally a one-year parliamentary session to an end, start a new session in which the government sets out in what's called the Queen's Speech what its legislative programme is. 
And it's certainly the case that in the past, prorogation has been used technically by some governments to get some short-term goals. For example, in 1948, the Labour government prorogued Parliament for a very short period so that it could basically overcome a legal hitch in getting laws passed, overcoming the Lords. They had to have a third session of Parliament to get some changes through. So it has happened technically in the past, but it is the nuclear option. No question about that. Even the most cautious academic analysts of Britain's constitution say this would be an outrageous thing for any prime minister to do. Miranda Green, I think this whole argument about trying to get no deal through really speaks to these hard choices facing the new prime minister. Because if you look at some of the more moderate candidates on Brexit, you know, your Jeremy Hunt or your Michael Goves, they're just talking about trying to renegotiate the deal, get it through. And if that doesn't work, maybe extend Brexit again. And to some part of the Tory party, that is not an appealing thing. It's the way they're trying to get around this is just saying we'll shut down Parliament. But it's quite an odd argument when you think that a lot of these Brexiters claim to support sovereignty, they want to take back control and empower democratic institutions, they want to do that by shutting them down. It's very peculiar. As James has said, it's not just a kind of nuclear option in terms of our British constitution, it's also the tin pot tactics of dictators everywhere. So it would be really bad in terms of Britain's standing in the world, I think. Not that people care that much about, about that small issue anymore. I think what's really interesting about this is, though, as you've said, Seb, that the new incoming prime minister faces all the same problems as the outgoing prime minister, and that is a hung parliament, no majority, and a question of if you go back to Brussels and ask for some tweaks to the deal that's on the table, is that enough to garner the votes to get a deal through and to actually leave with a deal. So all of the candidates who are still in the race, with the exception of Rory Stewart, I believe, who still is sort of clinging on to the May deal as the available compromise, are punting this idea of being able to get more concessions from Brussels. This is a really big ask and it's really, really doubtful. There do seem to be tiny little signs of flexibility. But again, would it be enough to get the right of the Tory party, who caused so many problems for May, to vote in favour of something that allows us to leave on October the 31st, which is speeding towards us without crashing out instead. Well, James, this is the interesting thing about what the candidates are pledging. Essentially, all of them are saying we're going to go back and renegotiate the backstop, apart from Esther McVeigh, who's now out of the contest, and Andrea Leadsom, who's also out of the contest, who are the most no-dealy types. With the impetus of a fresh prime minister, do you think there's any realistic sense of that? Or are they going to face this hard choice of kicking back Brexit one more time or trying to go to the country to get a mandate for no deal? Well, I think if you look at, say, Boris Johnson, and I think that's obviously where the focus is at the moment, because he is the person most likely to become prime minister. It's certainly possible that once he gets to Downing Street, he could go to the Europeans and say, let's take a look once again at the political declaration, which sets out the future framework for the relationship between the UK and the EU after we've left. And he could certainly get in their language that pushes us a bit more towards a Canada-style Brexit and something which looks a bit more robust than what's currently there. But what he isn't going to be able to do, as far as I can see, and from everything one hears from the Brussels end, 
is push through any kind of substantive or even any change to the divorce agreement, the withdrawal agreement that was agreed with Mrs. May. That's just not going to happen. I mean, there is some talk every now and again that Brussels might look at the Irish backstop and say, OK, we're prepared to have some kind of time limit there of something like five years, which would appease a hardline Brexiters. But then other people say that just isn't going to happen. It's not something they're going to conceive of. And so if Boris Johnson uses that period between late July and October the 31st to try and get changes to the political declaration, essentially bring that back and May's withdrawal agreement together and through his sheer political personality overcome the final 29 or 30 MPs he needs to get a majority because the last time round Mrs May lost by about 58 then I think we're there but if he is really going to insist on a change to the withdrawal agreement by October the 31st it ain't going to happen and I think that is why at the top of the civil service if you speak to people have spoken to people in the last few days They're getting pretty nervous. No deal. October the 31st is absolutely back on the front burner, I'm afraid. I think the other thing as well is that there's a lot riding on the idea that a fresh, incoming, triumphant new Tory leader can sort of change the political weather overnight and make all sorts of things possible that were impossible before. There is something to that, and particularly a Brexity figure like Boris Johnson will have a certain amount of leeway with his own MPs to make compromises and to make changes and to sell them for the good of getting out of the EU. But there are limits to that, and the limits are the same ones, as we've said, that existed for May. And I think that then when you are potentially staring no deal in the face again, a whole other set of constitutional novelties start to rear their head. There are very, very active conversations between the opposition parties about this idea of a no-confidence motion on the new incoming Prime Minister. And then you've got a bunch of different arithmetic as to how you add up the opposition parties and potential Tory rebels to disable an incoming Prime Minister before they can push through no deal. And just finally, James, briefly, we did see an effort by Labour this week to try and move ahead of this argument about no deal. And they wanted to reenact the Cooper Bowes Letwin plan to put legislation forward to allow the House of Commons to block a no deal Brexit. And they had a motion on the Wednesday, the Labour opposition day, which would have allowed MPs to take control of the House of Commons order paper on the 25th of June and put forward some kind of bill to stop no deal Brexit. But given the fee atmosphere of leadership contest that didn't get through and it was actually one of the biggest Tory majorities in quite a long time when the government won by 11 to stop that happening a lot of people said like Oliver Ledwin this is the end we cannot stop no deal but I don't think we're quite there yet not completely though I certainly think the dial has shifted a bit I think there are good reasons to think it's going to be less and less likely that parliament can stop no deal You know, there are several things that Parliament can do. Obviously, as Miranda said, you could bring down the government through a vote of no confidence. The trouble is you have to then put in place another prime minister, another government in a very short period of time to take control of the rudder, basically, and stop us going off the cliff. And I'm not sure that can happen. The thing about this week's legislation was that if you are going to want to try and use legislation to mandate a government not to go down the no-deal road and to get an extension, you need time. And the point about this effort by Labour and other parties was that it was getting in early and using the time there is 
to begin to get that legislation down. But unfortunately, now that that's failed, it's very difficult to see how that is going to happen further down the road. You could finally potentially pass a resolution of the House of Commons. You've had that before, a majority saying we're against no deal. But again, the problem is that those resolutions have been passed as amendments to Mrs. May's meaningful votes. Uh, what I think a lot of people are worried about is that the Johnson government, actually, when it comes in, if it is Johnson, can basically say, we're not going to bring anything to the House of Commons. We'll negotiate with Brussels. We'll see what happens. And if we get nowhere, we'll just go off the cliff and Parliament won't be able to do anything. So I think people are getting a little bit more pessimistic about the possibility of Parliament being able to stop what a Johnson government is doing. In the end, it is going to get more hairy than I think people have thought. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Miranda and James and especially Tim for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.